I tried everything the book talked about, you know, drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never having it in the house. I didn't have a house, but never having it in the van, you know, <laughs> never drinking in the morning, never drinking alone. And uh, I couldn't keep any of those rules. I just couldn't do it. Welcome to the Recovery Edge podcast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today I am sitting here with Tia and actually Fred. Uh, I met you guys at the uh, Tuesday night group, uh, Thirst Quenchers. And you guys pop in, it seems like over the last, I don't know, year maybe, you guys have popped in every few months or so. But you're kind of here for a, a minute now. So you guys have always had some interesting shares, and I love, <laughs> I love hearing bits and pieces of your story. So um, why don't we start off with your sobriety date? Okay, um, my name's Tia, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 2nd, 1982. Do you have a home group? I do. It's in Hamilton, Montana, and for the life of me, it just slipped the... It's a morning meeting I go to every morning, but I can't think of the name of it. Uh, How many years is that, then, 1982? 40 years sober. Wow, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. 40 years. So what's life like today? Um, Today it's happy, joyous, and free. Uh, You know, I was 32 years old when I came in to the program, and I was going through a very nasty divorce. I had a 14-year-old daughter I needed to raise. I had worked once in an office just as a file clerk, so I had never had any other experience working. And I was very frightened about um, being on my own since I'd been married since I was 17. So that's how I got to AA. I woke up in a um, blackout beating my daughter up. And I... We were at my brother's house, and I put her in the car, and we had a five-hour drive to where I knew there was a meeting. Yeah. And I drove straight to that meeting and and said, there's something wrong with me. You know, something happened. So. Well, why don't you go ahead and walk us through, you know, what it was mm-hmm. like, what happened, and what it's like today. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it was like. It was, um, I was... 32 years old when I got sober, and I was 17 years in my head. Just nothing ever, I never got any better. You know, I never grew up is what it is. And then um, right about the time I went to AA, my husband and I separated, and I was just scared. And the people in the program, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. That's the main thing. I just thought something had happened to me, which, you know, the night before I drank wine and ate cookies and woke up in a blackout. And that was my first and only blackout I ever had. But when I got to the program, people just said, sit down, shut up, and listen. Hmm. <laughs> and um, I cried for my first five years in the program. I just cried. I didn't know what was wrong with me, you know. And so then um, what happened was a lady came up to me after my year, first year and a half in the program. I didn't have a sponsor and didn't like the ladies I had chosen to be my sponsor. And this lady came up to me and she said, Honey, you don't have a sponsor, do you? And she buttoned up my blouse and she said, Well, you have one now and I'm going to call you to go to meetings and I don't want you to have any makeup on, no eyelashes, no pon- I want your hair back in a po- My hair was long. I want your hair in a ponytail. 
I want you standing on the curb, no high heel shoes, no tight pants, no blouse, no uh, half unbuttoned blouse. And I thought, who is this woman anyway? Actually, I said, who is this bitch anyway? <laughs> and um, so she she called me one day, and I thought, well, I'm just not gonna. I'll just say no. I can't make this meeting with her. And I thought, well, she thinks enough of me to talk to me the way she did and to button up my blouse in front of people. I guess she th- sees something in me I don't see. And so I went to the meeting with her, and she became my sponsor. And I learned so much from her for the five years she was there. And she taught me how to become a lady, how to become responsible, how to become honest, and how to be kind and loving. And that's what I, that was my first five years of sobriety. Hmm. And then after that, she moved away. And, um, you know... I stayed sober, and how I stayed sober was going to meetings, calling the women in the program, hanging out with the guys in the program, which I do not recommend for any woman or any guy. Get in there, get sober, and get your life together, you know, Mm -hmm. which did happen. And then I started sponsoring and and, um, being of service, and I think being of service was... I was so scared because I couldn't read and I couldn't write and I couldn't spell and I couldn't do math, so I thought because... That's how I grew up. But then I found out, you know, I had my own little business through the program. I started, I'm a florist by trade. And through the program, I started a flower business and a housekeeping business and took care of my daughter just fine. And through my divorce, I got a lot of money and I bought a condo and learned how to pay taxes and, you know, learned how to do that with the help of the people in the program. I had an attorney that would call me once a month and say, okay, pull out your checkbook. Let's do your checkbook right here now over the phone. And he taught me how to do my checkbook and how to put savings together. Not that I did it forever, because I didn't. Not that I didn't get in trouble with money, because I did. But they gave me that seed to know how to do it. So that, that was it. Before you got into the program on that first day, mm-hmm. were there any warning signs? Like, did anybody tell you that you... Or that you might have a problem? Yes, there were. Uh, there were a lot of warning signs. I didn't drive and drink. And when my daughter was seven and eight, she took uh, dance lessons. And the dance teacher said to me, Hey, how about you and I go to lunch? Because we, we lived at the beach then. And yeah. I said, Okay, great. Well, I'll bring the wine. And she goes, Oh, no, you don't have to bring the wine. I'm going to bring the big blue book. And I said, the big blue book, what's that? She said, well, you'll see when we get we get down at the beach. So we packed a lunch. We went down to the beach the next day. And it was Alcoholics Anonymous, the big blue book. And I thought, oh, this poor woman. She has to find anybody to read this book to. And she read it, but I didn't hear a word she was saying because all I was thinking of was, poor thing, she's got to find somebody, anybody to read the book to. So then um, my daughter became eight and nine, and she started taking tap dancing lessons and the tap, da- no, piano lessons. And the piano teacher said, um, hey, how about we go to lunch? I said, oh, let's go down to the lobster trap. They have the best margaritas in town. And she said, no, that won't be necessary. Why don't we just go down to the beach and I'll bring the big blue book. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what happened, you know, that mm-hmm. the seeds were planted, but I never drove drunk. I didn't drink 
until like five o'clock in the afternoon. But what they saw was my ism, my controlling way, how I was with my daughter. I was very controlling and very, you're going to do it this way, my way, you know. And so that was, those were my first few signs of, of um, having a seed planted. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of your drinking, um, did you start to have like remorse, a lot of, a lot of uh, just like feeling yourself like something's got to change? Like when did that, how did that bottom feel? Well, the bottom was the, the morning I woke up in the blackout. Yeah, and um, my husband, my ex-husband, and I had separated already, and I just felt useless, not just like I shouldn't even be alive, you know. And but I, I did not connect it to the alcohol, how bad I felt about myself, and how bad everything was bad. God didn't love me because I was seventeen and pregnant, and now He doesn't love me because my husband's left me for his secretary. And you know, it was always that kind of thing. I was always the victim. And then when I walked into the program, I just felt so I know now it was a feeling of love because people were so kind to me. And my background was from a very abusive Mexican home where uh, everything was about the stepdad, and anything he did was always perfect, and you were nothing, you know. And being a woman and being Mexican, I was still brought. I was brought up that I was nothing, and so when I got into the program, and people were so nice to me and kind, and the loving things. Like I had um, a group of four women in the very beginning who took turns sleeping at my house and making sure I got up in time to get to my morning meeting and brush my teeth and make my bed and take a shower because I was so mentally done that I couldn't I couldn't even do that. The first several years, tell me about that. Just tell me the, about your the, first several, the first several years. The first several years, um, I just immersed myself in meetings, mm-hmm. cried all the time, and uh, whatever was asked of me, I did it because I was scared. And I just wanted people to like me. I didn't care if they loved me. I didn't care if my ex-husband loved me, if you just liked me a little bit, you know. And people, I had a lady say to me, Tia, can I hug you? Every time she saw me. And some days I could say yes, and some days I could say, I had to say no, because I felt like if you touched me, I would be burning. And years later, I became the hugger of the meeting, you know, I would stand and be a greeter. I would go up to you and say, can I hug you? Can I give you a hug? And sometimes people would say yes. Sometimes they'd say no. You know, we had a newcomer at our meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I said, give me a hug. And he goes, oh, okay. And he kind of patted me on the back like a, a dead fish, you know. And I said, no, give Grandma a big hug. Give me a hug. Let me know that you're there, you know. And I remember that. I remember not feeling like I was there. You know, this is all a dream. And and, and I was real quiet. And then people would say, well, talk to me, Tia. Tell me what's going on with you. What's So I'd talk about my brothers or I'd talk about, you know, anything but me. Because I didn't think I was enough to talk about. And now that's all I talk about is me, 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 me. <laughs> but... Um, and the difference now, what I see, the di- like we had to, 
My sponsor said, get the vacuum out, vacuum the floor, empty the ashtrays. I didn't smoke. I drank, but I didn't smoke, so I didn't want to have to wash out anybody's ashtrays. And I said, why do I have to wash somebody's ashtrays? Why don't the smokers get up and get their own ashtrays and wash them? And she said, because you've been asked to do it. That's why. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, mm. I didn't want her mad at me, so mm -hmm. I would wash the ashtrays. So that's, you know, that for me is I don't have to be asked now. I know where, you know, if, if I can't lift chairs because of my back, but I can say, could you get these three chairs? Can, you know, I can be a leader that way. And I learned that I am a leader, and I didn't know that I was way back then. I had no idea that, that I knew what I was doing. Like, I knew how to clean a house. My mother taught me that. So I was making great money way back when I first got sober, and everybody was going, you make how much an hour? Well, but I needed to make more. You know what I'm saying? It's like... I found my worth. Even though it was I was a housekeeper, I found my worth of being a housekeeper. It's important, you know. It's important to do the job and know how to do it. And the same thing happened when I did weddings. I did a lot of weddings. Lot, that was my forte, loved doing weddings. And I got asked to do them. I didn't advertise. I worked out of my garage. But, oh, so-and-so, Tia did my wedding. Go call her. She's Great prices, great this, great, but her work is perfect, you know. So those are the things that I learned about myself in the program as I as I got sober, more and more and more. Then um, I once walked in out of the market, and a lady that went to my morning meeting, she said, "Tia, is that you?" I said, "Yes, it's me." And she goes, "I hardly recognize you from when you first came in." And I wasn't a falling down drunk. I wasn't. I was, um, I mean, you, if you saw me in a store, you wouldn't have known I was a drunk until I got angry and started throwing things, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I only drank by myself at home. So I was a stay-at-home drinker, you know. So that's, that's how it changed for me was that you can, I see things now that somebody's not, they don't have to smell, but it's their ism. It's what they have going on on the outside and what they show and their anger and their, their attitude, you know, that kind of thing. Do you work with others today? I do. I sponsor. I like right now being here, I'm from Montana and being here in Colorado, I have gals that I sponsor that, that call me and I call them. I keep in touch with them. My sponsor calls me. I call her. My sponsor has a sponsor. Her sponsor has a sponsor. So I could call her sponsor or her sponsor sponsor if I need to because we're all connected to each other. And we stay um, always saying, read the book, understand that. One thing I didn't understand when I first got sober was what that book could do for me, what the Alcoholics Anonymous book could do. And so I, kept, I took it everywhere I went my first five years. And I read it and read it and read it, but I didn't understand it. it didn't, I couldn't comprehend it. And then um, I went to a couple of book studies, and I found out that when you read that book, if you, when you go through it, it'll say you've just completed the first step or the second step, third step, and it, it goes all the way down and explains to you what you're doing. Then I started going to a book study that did the 12 and 12, then I could put the 12 and 12 together with the 12 steps in the big book. And then I recently, 
within the last year, I started going to a book study that talked about just the beginning of the book, the foreword of the book, reading all of those things. And when you read the contents of the book, it tells you what each step is about. Hmm. And it's it's like, oh, so the longer I'm sober, the more I'm realizing how important the books are to find out about who we are, how dishonest we have been in our, with ourselves, and how the book teaches us to be honest. And how if you don't want to believe in God, that's fine. Believe in something more than yourself. That The book taught me that. The big book taught me that. So I always laugh when I think of the two, the piano teacher of my daughters and the ballet teacher who said, oh, that's okay, I'm, I'm just going to bring the big blue book, <laughs> you know, because I know now how important it is to read and to go to book studies to find out what you're doing, how you do it, and how you can keep doing it. How have relationships uh, changed? Or how, how do you see relationships now versus... Well, when, when I drinking. first, when I first, when I was drinking, I just wanted everybody to like me. When I first got sober, I just wanted you to pretend you liked me, just like me, you know. <laughs> and now I know that I'm loved. I know that I'm very much cared for in my meetings. I know that if I tell, if I say something to you, it's the truth. I know that I don't have to lie anymore. I know that I don't have to steal anymore. I know that I don't have to pretend to like you. I can like you, but I don't have to love you. You know what I mean? It's like um, people that I, uh, for instance, my brother and sister-in-law, I love them dearly, and we live very close to them in Montana, and they have friends that I like, but they're not my friends. But if I'm at a party with them, I can like them and be kind. But if they get on my last nerve, I don't have to say, listen, you get on my last nerve, get the, get away from me. <laughs> be that I don't have to do that anymore, which I used to do. Um, but the, the biggest change for me is that um, I found out my worth with children, that I'm a nanny also. And in my later years now, I've nannied for a few people here in Colorado, and they would love me to come back and continue taking care of their children while I'm here, but I'm taking care of my grandson while I'm here. So I haven't done that. But um, And how those children love me. I have children that are were nine months and two and a half years old that are now 15 and 13, who I still keep in contact with, and they con- they contact me because of my love of what the program gave me to be kind and loving, I gave to those children, and they they do it with me now. And I saw them recently, our first uh, few months ago when we came back here to Colorado, and I just couldn't believe it. I just, I just couldn't believe how they loved me and how I could see it in their eyes, I could see it in their face, and I could feel it in the warmth that they gave me. And I thank God for that because that's what the program has taught me is that I am lovable. And you were remarried while sober. Yes. Mm-hmm. I met my husband in AA. And um, when my sponsor came up to me and buttoned up my blouse, she said, Honey, AA is not a place to meet somebody. That's like going to a bar. But I met my husband in AA, <laughs> and we've been together for 30-some years now. and happy you know not that we don't get on each other's last nerve every once in a while we do but we've had a good relationship and an honest relationship Hmm. Mm -hmm. um 
How do you see AA, how has AA changed throughout the years? Well, it hasn't changed much, I'll be honest. You hear the same things, You hear, I, I hear the same things today that I heard 40 years ago. Go to meetings, get a sponsor, be of service, read the books. Those are the basics of the program. Um, but for me, I, I haven't seen that much of a change except the one thing that I see is that when a sponsor would tell us to do something, we would do it immediately. Whether we liked it or we didn't, we would do it so that we could get on with it. Where I see a lot of people now come in, they don't want to get a sponsor, they don't want to read the big book, they don't want to be of service, and so they come and go, they come and go, they come and go, and then they finally hit bottom. And then they finally say, okay, I'll read the book. Okay, I'll get a sponsor. You know, I see that more today than I saw 40 years ago. But it's the basic same thing. You go to meetings, you get a sponsor, you read the books, you be of service, you know, you help others. I mean, it's just, it's the same thing that I heard 40 years ago. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember one of the best pieces of advice you got or something memorable that you mm -hmm. got from mm -hmm. someone? Miha, sit down, shut up, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. That was the best advice I, I had, was given by a very dear man who was very dear to all of us. In the pro, in, I got uh, sober in California, and he would take us all to coffee. And even if you didn't have money or you were hungry, he would feed you and buy your coffee. And if you could pay for it, fine. Miha, you got a couple extra bucks, you can buy that guy a hamburger? Sure, you know. And then it wasn't like you had to think about it. You'd just say, well, here, here's towards the hamburgers you're buying or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, any final words or anything that you want to express? No, just keep coming back. And, and if you don't have a higher power, you'll get one. You know, we all catch one when, once we're here for a while. Because I didn't have one when I got here. God couldn't love me. But he does, and he just keeps showing me that my life is good and worthwhile. Yeah. All right, yeah, thank you uh -huh, so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. How about you, Fred? You ready? <laughs> sure. All right, let's go for it. Right, my name is Fred. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Fred. Hi, Fred. I, uh, my sobriety date is November the 5th, 1980. I was 26 years old when I got sober. So that would be 42 years ago. 41. 41. 41. Congrats. Not till November. Awesome. Yeah. So. Um, How about a home group? Closest I would have to a home group would be there's a Thursday night talk story meeting in Hamilton, Montana. Mm -hmm. But I really, any meeting I feel I'm sitting in is kind of like my home group. And I'm not, you know, with... COVID in the last couple of years, my meeting attendance was really slacked way off. But um, with I, I don't I don't connect in Zoom meetings. That's for sure. I've tried them, and I just you know I need to be sitting in a room with alcoholics and and hearing stories. Mm -hmm. So. I'm getting back in and being here in, in Frederick has been real nice because I like small meetings. And Southern California, where we got sober, a small meeting was 25 people kind of deal. And uh, 
So I, I, I'm, my preference is always eight to ten kind of people sitting around a table. They tend to be a little more honest, a little less ego. Yeah. And uh, more comfortable for me. So, but I started drinking at the age of about 12. And, um, you know, it's, I loved it from the start. I, I was taking care of a friend of mine's house while they were on vacation, and he had hidden a pint of whiskey in his closet, and I knew it was there. And uh, I drank most of it, and I think I weighed all at 90 pounds. And the very first drunk, I blacked out. A friend of mine told me that I laid down in the street and challenged cars to run me over. And I <laughs> climbed a fence and fell down on my head. And then um, went to see his girlfriend, and, and I was chasing her around, trying to make her be my girlfriend. And uh, so he wasn't very happy with me. But, you know, I, I don't remember any of it, and I loved it. And I couldn't wait to do it again. And, you know, that started the ball in motion that every opportunity that came up, I drank. Um, somewhere in there, 15, 16 years old, discovered pot too. And back then, you had to smoke a lot of pot to get a buzz. And we did. And, uh, you know, by 16 or 17, I was pretty much drinking daily. I wasn't drunk daily, but I was drinking daily. And... I was still maintaining a B average in school, and I wasn't getting in trouble, and I wasn't getting arrested, and it was uh, it was a real um, almost split personality going on. And I graduated high school a little bit early. I started college early. I flunked out of the, my first college. Um, because I was just drinking and drugging, and I had never established good study habits, even though I managed decent grades, I tested well <laughs> in school. And um, but you know, once I turned eighteen, and they weren't taking attendance in college, I was off and running. And somewhere in there, I got a job working as a teacher's aide in an elementary school special ed class, and. Uh, some ways, looking back, that job saved my life in a lot of ways because by then I was feeling so less than in my own life that having those kids not judge but just, you know, accept and like and, uh, you know, I felt like I was doing something. And in a lot of ways that, that gave me something to hang on to. And... Um, out of that job, I ended up working in a counseling center with kids. One of the therapists that was working with our kids hired me to help him run group pre-adolescent and adolescent group therapy sessions. And then, um, you know, I, I had the head of the special ed department wanting to hire me, wanting me to finish college and get my teaching credential. I had this therapist who was willing to supplement my income to help me go to college. And I was drinking and drugging like a madman. You know, at the time I was working in the elementary school, I was also working full-time at a Denny's, 10 to 6, you know, graveyard shifts. I'd get off there, and um, I would go straight home, take a shower, go teach school, go to work at the school. 
and then I would, was carrying about 12 units in college. So I was constantly exhausted, constantly pretty much drunk. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was an insane time. And it went on for a couple of years. And once I got crazy enough and um, flunked out of my, I think my third college, I um, sold all the stuff my parents had paid for, bought a VW van and moved to Colorado from Southern California because California was my problem. <laughs> and my brother was living up in Steamboat Springs, so I went up to his house and first day in town, um, rented a room with some friends of his and a house with, I think we had five bedrooms, 15 people and five dogs in the house and one of the guys was dealing bunch of pot and I got a job working in a bar so you know right away it was we were off and running but I think I stayed in the house for four or five months four months and we got evicted so I just moved into the van Perfect. and uh you know down down by the river living in a van is what it was <laughs> and uh Drinking like a fish and smoking tons of pot and just totally out of control. And at that time, my dad started having a problem with his drinking. And uh, his partner wanted to get rid of him, and he was just really out of control. And so I ended up leaving Colorado to go back home with my background in counseling, of course. I went back to help out the family. And... Uh, we got my dad into treatment. I took his place on the bowling team, and I stayed drunk. I went to family groups drunk on Thursday night. We'd go in to talk about the, the alcoholism in the family. And I remember one night in there, they kept talking about what an alcoholic was. And I basically, if you'd asked me at 16, I'd have told you I was an alcoholic. But I didn't care, you know. And I remember that group, I was furious because they kept talking about me. You know, they kept talking about me, the alcoholic, the alcoholic. And I, I remember just going, can't we talk about any anything else? I was swearing my head off, you know. I was like, can't we just? I'm tired of hearing about this stuff. And uh, when I look back on it, I don't know why they didn't put me in treatment that night. Because hmm. I'd been drinking beer before I came to group, and they never confronted me on it. My dad made lots of money, so they knew he could afford to put me through treatment, too, if... If they, you know, slammed me in. and uh, But they didn't. Dad got out of treatment. He went back to doing his thing. I, uh, you know, it was about that time I started trying to control my drinking. You know, and, and I just, you know, I tried everything the book talked about. That, you know, drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never having it in the house. I didn't have a house, but never having it in the van, you know, <laughs> never drinking in the morning, never drinking alone. And uh, I couldn't keep any of those rules. I just couldn't do it. So, you know, I uh, took off to try and go to one more college. They said, you know, they said, if you want to go back to school, we'll pay for it. But if you don't finish this time, you're going to have to pay us back. And uh, never dawned on me there's no way they could enforce that. But something changed with my parents. And all of a sudden, they were kind of serious. And they didn't say anything about my drinking. They just said, you have to, you know, you have to finish. And uh, 
we went up and, and I was living in Santa Maria, California on my way to San Luis Obispo to go to college up there. And I got a job and became a kitchen manager in a Mexican restaurant and never quite made it to the college up there. But, and I got so depressed and I was couch surfing up there. I was staying with some friends and they, uh, I was drinking so much and I had their, their younger son or their older son. He was my best connection to buy pot from. And, uh, you know, things were just out of control. I remember one day he and I were fighting about a $5 bill. I was 24 at the time. He was, I think, 17. And we, we were fighting over a $5 bill, and it got ripped in half. And I got mad and went out and got into my car, which was a 1973 American Motors Gremlin, puke Ooh. green with a tapestry for the front seat cover. I love gremlins. <laughs> and uh, I started up my car because I had some money. I was going to go get something to eat or something. And the next thing I know, I look up and there's a hammer coming at the windshield. And he was trying to hit me in the forehead with a hammer and smash the windshield. And as soon as he did that, he dropped the hammer and ran because he knew I'd kill him. <laughs> and as he ran up the street, I went back into the house and somehow I connected that to my drinking and drugging. I went in and I flushed the pot I had down the toilet. And 10 minutes later, I went, that was a really stupid thing to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was November 1979, I was living up there and I got so depressed right around Thanksgiving that I ended up calling AA. I'd known, I'd known, you know, I started hearing the message of recovery when my dad was in treatment. And, you know, while they were doing family group, while we were doing family group, he was down at an AA meeting and they talked about it, you know. And he didn't like AA. He was a very, very quiet, private man. And he never could really connect. But I started hearing the message. I called AA. These guys came out and 12-stepped me that night. And um, they told me about meetings, and they encouraged me to come. And a couple of days later, I didn't drink, and I went to my first meeting. And I remember being terrified, <laughs> just terrified in the parking lot. And I went in, and um, I liked it, and I didn't like it at the same time. And it started a pattern of two or three weeks sober, and then five or six weeks drunk, and two or three weeks sober, and five or six weeks drunk. And I'd go to meetings drunk, I'd go loaded, I'd go, you know, I just, because I was in that really depressed mood. And the only reason I didn't kill myself was I just didn't have the guts, you know. But uh, these guys at 12-step me, every time I'd show up, they'd say, well, you got struck drunk again, didn't you? You know, and, and if you have to keep drinking, okay. Keep, but... This thing will work better if you don't drink between meetings and you keep coming to meetings and give this thing a shot. And it took 13 months till I voluntarily signed up in a DUI program in California with the guy that was running it at the counseling center I had worked at before. And I became their only voluntary client. And he forced me to go back to AA. And I had to sit in these groups with all these drunk drivers who spent all their time telling you they weren't alcoholic. And <laughs> but I got, you know, he, he forced me to go back to meetings. And 
so November, November 4th, I think I made my first meeting, 1980. November 5th, one of my buddies that I played a lot of music with, because I've always played guitar and sang and, and had visions of being a rock star. Um, his daughter was born, and I picked him up to take him out for a drink. And I ended up having three Boilermakers that I hadn't planned on. And then he wanted to go back to be at the hospital with his daughter and his wife. And somehow driving home that night, I just stopped. You know, I knew there was beer in the fridge still, but I, I didn't drink anymore. And I went back to a meeting the next night, and I started going every day. And, you know, I filled up my little court card. My counselor had me getting signed. I was supposed to go to one a week, and I went up to, like I say, I filled that thing because I, I started going every day. And a little club that, that we got sober at, I started getting to know some people who were closer to my age. You know, like I say, I was 26. And at that time, the average age was probably 45. And I was sitting in meetings and people were talking about mortgages and spouses and, you know, jobs and all these things that I didn't relate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I could talk Volkswagen van and fired, mm -hmm. you know. But um, they said get a sponsor and I, you know, find somebody who's got what you want and ask them to be your sponsor. So I asked this guy to be my sponsor and, I, you know, what he had was he had a car, he had a, a job, he had an apartment. And that was all kind of stuff I thought sounded pretty good. And uh, it turned out he was kind of crazy. And he was sober, but he was a very large guy, and he had a very bad bipolar sort of anger management issue. And uh, he took me to meetings, and he scared me enough to make me start sharing. And then he left the state to avoid being arrested. And so... You know, cool. it, was, it was good for me. I needed somebody <laughs> else in my life. And, uh, you know, by that time, I had gotten to know there was a bunch of uh, the Marines from Camp Pendleton that were being put through treatment. They'd show up in the van and then a bunch of the younger. So I got to know three or four guys that were in their early 20s. And we started hanging out, you know, and we just, we... We did everything together, basically, and, you know, did a meeting every day, became a uh, secretary of some meetings, spoke at meetings, you know, did that. There was a halfway house nearby, and those guys all had my phone number, so they'd call when they needed a ride, which was usually when I didn't want to go, and I'd take them to meetings, and, and uh, I'd 12-step the hell out of them. Um, I hadn't worked any steps myself, but I was telling them all how to do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I just, it started, it started, the magic started to happen. And, uh, you know, things, things got good. I got friends. I, I, I started, you know, feeling a little good. The counseling center that I worked at that I did the DUI program at, um, they asked me if I was interested in being one of their counselors. And I said, no, none of those guys want to be here. They don't want to get sober. I don't want to do it. And about three weeks later, one of the ladies who was, was one of the counselors there that was in recovery, she said, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble with this one group. These guys, because I'm a woman, they're just giving me all sorts of grief. And it's all these guys that are just macho, blah, blah, blah. 
would you come and sit in the group with me and I want to see how it changes the dynamic. So I went and sat in group with her a couple of times and then she quit. <laughs> and the boss said, well, Fred, you know the guys, so you're working here now. <laughs> wow. And for five years I worked um, as a, in that program. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and had a lot of fun. I would, back then the, the state wasn't as tight on it, so we could uh, we could give them I could give them credit for education credit for like if they'd go to an AA dance. I said, yeah, I'm going to this dance on Friday night. I see you guys there and you're sober and you come in and just check it out. I'll give you two hours education credit, you know, and so we had a lot of fun with it. About a year was that a year sober when I met you. About a year sober, I met T, and we didn't start dating really till the, my third birthday. I was, I'm a very shy guy, and I'm very mm -hmm. much an introvert, and she was way too out of my league, you know. Um, and if she hadn't have told me that we were going to go out, basically. <laughs> Nice. I don't think we ever would have, because I would have been too too afraid to, to ask her. And we started dating off and on, and you know, she uh, we seemed to go to a lot of weddings because she was doing flowers for them. And one year, I think my third year sober, I was either best man, usher, or musician for probably. 10 weddings, something like that. Wow. And, uh, you know, so we, we just, we did a lot of that. We started, we also did a lot of group dating where we'd go out with a group either to an AA dance or even to the bars. We'd go in a group and go to just hang out and have fun. And if you met somebody cool, if you didn't meet anybody, you had the group there. Or if somebody came up and you didn't want to talk to them, you had the group there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we did a lot of that. And, you know, I think that stuff as much as because I was never good with sponsors. I'm not, I'm not good at picking sponsors. But I, I sat down and I worked the steps with, with different people. And I started sponsoring people. Five years sober, I had a friend call and say they were looking for a counselor in an adolescent rehab unit. And was I interested in being the one of the primary counselors? And I was getting tired of the drunk driving stuff, so I said, yeah, I'll come up there. So I did, and two weeks later, I was a primary counselor at a residential <laughs> hospital-based program. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what I was doing. And, um, but I was good at it, you know? And it's funny, I'm still in contact with a lot of those kids 30 years later, you know, 35 years later, that, you know, and we, were, we were really a tough program. It was not a, oh, tell me how you feel. It was more like, shut up, sit down, do what you're told, you know, and it was a lot of, a lot of peer work. And... Um, you know, it was it. It put me through a lot of changes because I had to address all the stuff. You know, it's like I want to save them all. 
but then I had to deal with my own childhood codependency issues to get through it. And, you know, we had a lot of success. We had a lot of funerals. We had both. Uh, and um, I worked that program 25 years, something like that. So I've always, I've always worked in treatment up until three or four years ago. It was really when I stopped working in treatment at all. And, you know, continued on in AA, been through all those life experiences. You know, you say, oh, it gets better. And it does. It gets so much better. Yeah. But it also gets real, you know. And, mm. and I've been fired from jobs. We've gone bankrupt. We've lost houses. We've buried all our parents and plenty of friends. And, you know, mm. that's on the one side. The other side. But... You know what? When somebody in recovery dies, it's a celebration of life. Somebody, you know, somebody ODs, it's not a, it's not a, the funerals are miserable. They're terrible. You know, they're sad. And, um, you know, so it's, it's all, it's all been good. You know, T and I got married 38 years ago, 39 years ago, <laughs> somewhere in there. And uh, you know, and we've been we've been on this adventure for a long time now. And it's that's a been, big accomplishment. It's great. It's great. You know, and, and you know, one of the things I love in my life is our kids have never seen me drink. T has never seen me drink. Our grandkids, and now our great grandkids. You know, and uh, and I have good relationships with them all. That uh, that guy that I took out for the drink on my last night drinking. His daughter just turned 41 years old last November when I turned 41 years old. Mm -hmm. And he still drinks. And every time we're in California, I get together with him and we play guitar, we play music. And, you know, he's, he's, uh, they didn't tell me I had to get rid of all my old friends. They just said, your friends will, you know, you'll find out who your friends are <laughs> in recovery. Mm. And, uh. A lot of my friends I thought were really tight disappeared. And a lot of people that I didn't consider real close friends came out of the woodwork to help. You know? So it's been really good that way. So, I don't know what else, huh? So your guitar playing, um, you picked up guitar back in the drinking days, right? I, yeah, I first started trying to play guitar when the Beatles came out, you know, and, <laughs> that'll age me and uh but when I was a teenager and I was in high school I worked at a summer camp a couple of summers mm -hmm. and started playing guitar up there a lot my younger brother has always played and, and he and I were drinking drugging buddies and musician buddies yeah. so our family events were always you know we didn't take home movies we turned on the recorder and tried to you know and played Guys I met when I was working as a cook, my buddy that I had my last drink with was a very talented musician, and so we, we'd always play. And in sobriety, especially working the adolescent rehab, I always had a guitar at work. And I'd sit there, I worked a lot of nights, and I'd sit in the hall and I would just play guitar while the kids went to sleep. And the power of it was... Um, you know, we'd have kids come in and we'd get them, if you could get them singing and playing, it was powerful stuff. 
and we'd go to the beach and we'd have cookouts and get them playing songs and singing and you know uh, kids that I worked with a lot of every time they were coming up on a year sober I'd say what do you want to, you know what do you want for your one year to celebrate you know we're gonna celebrate your birthday and a lot of them because they hated me so much in treatment got the honor of putting a pie in my face for their one year sober. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and we had one kid, a kid named Lee, that came in. He was super shy, super quiet, super talented kid. I said, Lee, what do you want? And he said, I want to come to your house and play guitar. I said, okay. And I've still got the tape somewhere. I'd, i got to send it to him but um, to watch the, the transformation. So music has always been a huge part of what we did every time we had downtime in the rehab i'd just have the guitar out we'd do a nighttime meditation and i'd sit down and play like james taylor and cat stevens and that kind of stuff little pink floyd and, mm -hmm. and um to this day when i see kids who went through there now they're adults and then when i was working with kids that was always the question they'd say you know do you still play music for the kids hmm. and um they don't remember any groups or how profound I was or anything. <laughs> no. But they remember the, emo the emotion and the music that, yeah. that lets them open up. And, uh, you know, that's has been just super powerful. I had, we, uh, we had two kids that came in there, 15, 16. They fell in love. <laughs> you know, Steve and, oh, what was her name even? I don't even remember. But they were madly in love in treatment, you know, it was a romance at 15. And when, you know, so we wouldn't let them have a relationship. But they got out and went their own separate ways. And they, they got married and had lives, you know, each one found a spouse and had some kids. Mm -hmm. And then um, and they divorced and then they found each other again. Hmm. And so it was probably. I don't know, probably 30 years later, they got married. And Heather got a hold of me on Facebook, and she says, Fred, you, you used to play the song Thank You by Led Zeppelin in the hall, and you told us that was the song you and your wife got married to, that you walked into church in. I said, yeah. She says, well... Steve and I, now that we've gotten back together, we've decided we're going to get married. We want to have that. And my 14-year-old son has learned to play it so that we can walk into the church. <laughs> nice. You know, uh, memories like that and things like that are just like, wow. So, And the place I was working down in Boulder, we would do open mics. We, we created a thing we called creative recovery. It's open to anybody in any type of recovery. And we would do open stage once a month. We we had a performance. We had a stage, and we had sound man. And we, you know, when you take a newly sober kid and walk them through that fear of getting up there and feeling so vulnerable and playing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I had a kid Jacob that was he was a pretty talented little kid, and he practiced for a couple of months. Said, "Okay, I'm going to do the open mic." And we got there, and we're getting all set up, and people, and Jacob, you're up, you're coming up, you know. And so, oh, I can't do it. I'm not ready. I'm going to wait another month. I'll do it next month. I promise. And it was like, Jacob, get 
your ass on stage. And we let him get up with an electric guitar and play with a couple other people. And uh, he got up and he did that. And then we took away the electric. We sat him down solo with an acoustic. Mm-hmm. And uh, he played one song and the response was so good that he wanted to play another song. <laughs> and in the course of about 15 minutes, I had to drag him off stage. And later, when he was getting out of the program, we would talk about it, and he would say, that was the transformation. Awesome. You know? So that part has always been huge. You know? so. What was the one song that the kids at the hospital always asked you for? Wish You Were Here. Wish you Pink were Floyd, here. Wish You Were Here. Cool. Yeah, that, Knocking on Heaven's Door. Um, what was the James Taylor? Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Susanna planted me, put me into you. So, yeah. So then today, and really we can ask both of you here. Okay. Tell me, I mean, today I'm here. It's snowing. It's a snowy day out here in Colorado. And you guys are taking care of your grandson, right? Mm-hmm. How have the promises worked out for you both? <laughs> Well, for me, um, because I, like I said in the, when I was sharing that I didn't know how to read when I came here. I thought I didn't know how. I was just had no confidence. And uh, Fred and I, when we started dating, um, I'd been sober just, what, five, four or five years, something like that, when we really got into a relationship. And we went camping a lot, and we still go camping a lot. But um, one night... I read a vision for you to Fred out loud and got through that. And everything that's in the promises has come true for us. I mean, we're, you know, we've been financially broken. We've been financially high. And either way, we're still together. You know, we've worked through it. So the promises of life will change for the better, it's true. It does. And to look for the miracles. You know, that was one of the first things that was said to me, Tia, you're going to have miracles. Look for the miracles. And I could go on and on about the miracles that have happened in my life through this program that are very small. You wouldn't even, until you go, oh, my God, that was a miracle. Why would that be put in front of me? That was a miracle, you know, and really know that it was a miracle. So that, for me, has been how it's changed is you just keep coming back and you just keep working at it, you know? You don't even know you're working at it as long as you keep coming back and you hear what you hear in meetings. Very good. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's uh, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. The hospital I worked at, it took them a year to get me to do an education to stand up in front because we would have a hundred people and to stand up and lecture and talk mm-hmm. and to be an expert at something was so intimidating and um, you know to get up on stage and perform things like that that they don't scare me anymore it's an excitement that's fun you know and feels good mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, we've been through enough financially up and down and everything else that, you know, I never figured I was going to live as long as I've lived, so I never figured I was going to retire. So to be retired now, and we still eat, <laughs> we still have a roof over our heads, and 
you know, so long as we keep doing what we need to be doing, our needs get met, you know, and that's been the, the beauty of it is that, you know, that the, the big book talks about found a way of living that meets all of our needs, mm-hmm. you know, not just in sobriety. Um, I'm much saner today. I'm still crazy. <laughs> um, I still don't know that I'm an adult half the time. <laughs> Good. You know, and uh, I always think back to, you know, it's like I don't feel old. I still have, you know, it's like I look at my brother sometimes and both of them seem like they're living in the past or the best is already done. Uh, you know, when I read the big book, it says, you know, the best part of our lives is still to come. You know, that we're not a glum lot, that we insist on enjoying life. And we do, you know. I'll get on the road tomorrow and I'll drive 800 miles to Hamilton and I'll spend some time up there to check on the house and see some people and hit some meetings. And then I'll get back down here to see my, my kids and my grandkids. And, you know, it's like, hello. Yeah, my. <laughs> <laughs> and my rock. <laughs> Good old what's her name? <laughs> yeah, you know, so. But I think, you know, since we did meet in the program and I mean our we don't get in each other's program. He doesn't tell me how to work mine, I don't tell him to work his unless he's not going to meetings, you know. Unless I'm not going to meetings because we need that camaraderie of the people to keep us straight. And we both know that. And when we do say, you know, how many meetings have you been to? Because I like to go to a meeting every day. And since I've been here, I don't go to meetings every day, but I'm okay, you know. And people say, why do you still go to meetings? I mean, you've been sober a long time. Why do you still go? So it's not for me. It's for the newcomer so that I can share what I know. You know, what I, what I know is if you go to meetings, read the book, and I'll go on and on on that thing. But um, that's that for me is really important to understand that no matter what he does, it's not about me, it's about him. No matter what I do, it's not about him, it's about me. And that has been, I think, why we've stayed married as long as we have, and we still honor each other that way, through being sober. Not something we could have done drinking. Oh, no way. (laughs) (laughs) No way. I don't think you'd like living in the van no, with me. No, I don't think you're a little mouse and you're... No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, it's a great story, and I really appreciate you guys sharing it with us. I think people are going to get a kick out of it. So thank well, you so thank much. You. Thank you for having us. Also, thank you for the work you're doing with your podcast. It's really important that people hear just on a not in a meeting setting just hear what's going on and how people stay sober and and why they stay sober you know so thank you for your work well thank you thank you thank you tia and fred for sharing your experience strength and hope with us and thank you listeners for checking out the recovery edge podcast you can find more of our episodes on spotify iHeartRadio, apple podcast share us with a friend check us out And I really appreciate you guys, and we'll see you next time.